Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends, feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, Andrew Scheer, leader of the Conservative Party, resigns. Who will be his replacement? Election Day in the UK. And new information about the mysterious death of Barry and Honey Sherman. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Uh, obviously, Election Day in Britain today. We're going to talk to uh, Daryl Bricker with Ipsos, who's over there. Uh, also, can't uh, chat with him without asking what's uh, going on with uh, the Conservative Party, uh, because simply he was so involved with uh, us in our election coverage and what was going on. Uh, and Daryl Bricker is with us now. Is Daryl on? Yeah, I'm here. Daryl, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. I love the musical choice, by the way, with London Calling by The Clash. That that's great. Whenever we talk about Brexit, that's the song we use. It just seems to fit. Perfect. Uh, <laughs> uh, before we get to what's happening over there and the buzz in London right now, your thoughts, uh, since you did so much work covering our federal election back here, uh, your thoughts on Andrew Scheer stepping down as leader of the Conservatives today? Uh, I mean, we can debate the circumstances under which it happened. I'm sure there's going to be more coming out about that. But what it basically does is it gives the Conservative Party a chance to reset. And if leadership was a problem in the election campaign, and I think the polling showed that it was, uh, this is one way of dealing with that. So uh, while I, you know, probably the opposition parties are rejoicing today, if the uh, Conservatives make a decent choice in terms of who their next leader will be, somebody who can compete in the province of Ontario in particular, uh, that's a real problem for the Liberals. I was just about to say, uh, what does that say when he steps down because his party did not beat their leader and was supposed to do so? Uh, obviously a graze, but not a direct hit. Can the Liberal Party view it that way? Uh, they, they might be able to, but if uh, the biggest disadvantage the Conservatives had in the last election campaign was the inability of their leader to connect. And the Liberals were able to uh, uh, use that in order to win the election campaign. If you change the one thing that that puts you in the position of winning, uh, you've got to come up with something else. And, uh, you know, as I've said to many folks after the election campaign, it, it resolved nothing. I mean, all of the problems that existed before uh, with people's concerns about Justin Trudeau and the Liberal Party maintain themselves. All of the concerns they have about the future of the country continue on in the same uh, same direction. Uh, there's still a lot of problems that people wanted uh, to resolve as a result of that election that they never got the chance to do because of the problem that the Conservatives had with their leader. Uh, and so now that that's going to be changed, if the leaders make a, a wise choice, if the Lib- uh, Conservatives make a wise choice going forward, that puts them into a pretty competitive comp- uh, uh, position with the Liberal Party uh, uh, going into the next election campaign. Any idea on prospective candidates? Who would pull up there as a possible leader? Well, at this point, everything that we could talk about is going to be a, um, uh, you know, based on awareness and nothing else. I mean, people really don't know very much about the potential candidates other other than if, say, a Doug Ford got into the campaign or a Jason Kenney got into the campaign. It's not, a lot, not like there's a lot of really high-profile people out there uh, that they would have really strong views about, like Justin Trudeau when he ran to be the Liberal of the, right. Liberal, Par- uh, of the Liberal Party. So I expect that there's an opportunity here for somebody 
you know, to come from the pack who's well organized and puts together a, a, a convincing campaign, and particularly one that starts early, uh, where he might have a he or she might have a real advantage. Uh, so, you know, we've heard a bit about Peter McKay. Is he really interested in the job? Maybe Ron Ambrose. Maybe she's interested in the job. Aaron O'Toole, who came in third in the last election campaign from Durham, he might be interested in the job. So, I think that they uh, they'll uh, unlike the last time where it looked like uh, you, you're going to have to sit in the back benches for a long time. Uh, the potential for the next leader of the Conservative Party to be the next Prime Minister of the country is definitely there, and that should attract the, attract the best that they have. Uh, Daryl Bricker is with us from Ipsos. He's in London. So what's the buzz in London this Election Day? Uh, well, we just put out our last poll. It's interesting here in uh, the U.K. they do it on the day of the election. Uh, but uh, what we're seeing is that uh, uh, the Conservatives have about an 11-point lead, and they're pretty much poised to form a majority uh, with uh, Boris Johnson as the, the next Prime Minister of the UK. They're continuing as, a, as Prime Minister now. Uh, we do know that in the past we've had some issues with polling in the UK, so there can always be a bit of a surprise. But uh, not only our polling, but the consensus of polling pretty much shows the same thing here. So the expectation among everybody that you talk to here, even though they're a little gun-shy because of what's happened previously, um, uh, is that they're, uh, they're going to see a Conservative majority as of, uh, uh, I guess, 10.05 or 10.15 tonight. Uh, we remember what happened south of the border when everyone thought that Trump wouldn't win and then uh, ended up doing so. Uh, we have sort of another populist leader with Boris Johnson and, you know, the wild card here being Brexit. Who knows what the U.K. is going to think as they go into uh, the voting booth. Do you think there's a chance that something wacky could happen here? Yeah, well, we even saw in the Canadian election that, you know, 7 or 8% of the population, the voters, made up their minds in the voting booth. Now, that would have to be a really, really big change here in the UK because the Conservatives have such a big lead. But, mm-hmm. you know, you look at the numbers and you can you can see the potential that maybe the, the Labour Party might not do as badly as the current polls are showing. Or also, equally, there's a potential that the Conservatives could do better than the polls are showing. So, uh, yeah, a little bit of white-knuckle driving uh, going into the, into the end of it. But if you had to bet today, uh, right now, on who would win and what the, what the form of the government would the Conservatives, and you'd have to bet on a majority. Does that say that the majority of those in the UK are behind Brexit then, since the Conservative Party is so and is eager to get this done? No, it does not. And, and that is one of the interesting things. The, it's, a, it's a little bit like some of what we saw in the, in the Canadian uh, election on climate change, where you had one party that was in sort of one direction, then you had three or four other parties that thought something else. So in, in the UK, you've got one party, strong party, that's basically pro-Brexit. And then you've got the other parties that either are sort of ambiguous on it or want to do the referendum again. Uh, there's really no place to vote one specific vote that you can place if you're opposed to Brexit proceeding. So as a result of that, um, the opposition hasn't been able to unite in order to defeat the Conservatives. Uh, the pro-Brexit folks, the Leave folks, are, are fairly united around one choice. Uh, the, uh, the, uh, the Remain folks are not. Uh, is there an appetite for another referendum there? Uh, no. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's interesting. We even asked about the appetite for a Scottish referendum. 
Uh, so, um, you know, one of the, the uh, discussions that we have here, or they've had here quite vigorously over the next, uh, over the last while, is if, well, if the UK leaves, then there's going to be a great appetite in Scotland for, uh, for a referendum on the future of, uh, of, of their relationship with the United Kingdom. And even in that instance, only about a third of people in Scotland say they want to have another referendum within the next year. So I think people are kind of worn out by what's going on in politics. They want to move on. They want to, um, you know, close and and, uh, and walk into whatever the future is going to be. So um, my expectation is that what we're seeing in the polling is probably going to happen, very high probability that it's going to happen, and that over the space of the next you know year, 18 months, that, uh, that, the, uh, uh, that the United Kingdom is going to be finding itself going out of uh, its relationship uh, with the European Union, and uh, their government is going to be dominated by the discussions over what the form of the various trade agreements they're going to have around the world, but also with the uh, individual European countries, what, what shape they will take. Uh, this, if this continues the way you're predicting and Boris Johnson does go on to form the majority, still a lot of heavy lifting to do, though, in around Brexit, isn't there? Like, this isn't over for them. Yeah, it, it is. Uh, but the one thing that they will be able to achieve is that they will be able to, if they have to take something to the legislature, they will be in a position where they'll actually be able to get some things passed. And and that's the reason that they're they're having the election yeah. is because they weren't able to get any form of of, uh, of resolution passed on uh, what the future of the country was going to be uh, outside of the uh, European Union. So um, uh, at least they've they've been able to close that door. At least they'll be able to move to a new direction where the negotiations have. Some finality to them, and uh, and and the prime minister will be able to make some choices and decisions, which the in the present situation seem to be impossible. The UK must be exhausted with this whole process. That's basically what what you're feeling over here when you talk to people. They just want it done, and you know it's similar to the Canadian election campaign where there was just you know no joy in Mudville. Um, where nobody was really happy about the choices and nobody was really happy about the outcome. It feels that way here. All right, Daryl Bricker has been with us from Ipsos uh, talking about uh, Andrew Shear stepping down as Conservative leader and over in London uh, watching what's going on with today's uh, election uh, happening uh, in the UK. Daryl, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Michael Tobe is with us, Troy Media Syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times, as well former speechwriter for Stephen Harper, and he is with us now. Michael, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. Surprised? Completely. I didn't see it coming. I don't think most people did. I know some people, you're going to find somebody, I'm sure, somewhere around that said, oh, I knew from the very start. No. They didn't. Um, a lot, most of us thought that Andrew Scheer would fight it out until next April, the leadership review. Whether he won or lost was obviously a completely separate issue, but I don't think anyone expected this today. It's interesting that you say that because I felt the same way. I was surprised, and yet I was into the newsroom as well. You know, I'm not surprised because, well, I mean, him not being popular or getting the questions that he is, that's one thing. Him stepping yeah. down is another because it seemed uh, right up until the earlier on this week, he seemed to be pretty cemented to taking this thing forward. Oh, absolutely. I don't think there's any question of it, and I don't have to make a grandiose statement to you. He was ready, and the fact that he was ready was he had already set up his team. He had his deputy leader in place and had obviously taken some heat with her, Ms. Alslev, 
and he was ready to go. I mean, I, I don't think anyone disputed that one way or the other. That's why organizations were there opposing him, like Conservative Victory, Sheer Must Go, etc. And that's why there were organizations that were supporting him as well. Most people thought, and most conservatives thought, he was there till the bitter end. And who could blame him? It was his position to win or lose, so he had that right. Uh, what happened? What was the tipping point here, considering all of what you said? I'm not 100% sure, um, and I know that's not the most definitive answer to give you, and I may not know for a few days. I don't think a lot of us are going to know. There are some rumors swirling around, and um, in fact, Mercedes Stevenson of Global News was one of the first ones to break it, suggesting that there may have been something involving school financing with his children, and their private school financing, and that there may be something questionable about it. I have absolutely no idea, Scott, if it's true. And as I said on Twitter, I sincerely hope it isn't. Assuming that is not the case and it's just a rumor floating around and we put that aside, I think that unfortunately what may have happened, and he kind of alluded to this in his statement in Parliament, is that you know he wanted to put his party first and his family first. And while that may sound like a contrived line, my guess is that he's been pretty hammered, you know, you know, or been hammered very badly, so yeah. to speak, for the past 52 days, just getting attacked from all ends. And it probably, you know, it weighs upon you. It weighed upon people who've had it in the past who've suffered things like this, including Stockwell Day when he was the leader of the Canadian Alliance. It's, it's not a pleasant state of being. It really isn't. You know, he has a young family. He has young children. And they see their father every single day and on TV, on radio, in the papers, in magazines. And it's just over and over again. And yeah. most of it happens to be negative, not positive. Now, I don't know if that's the reason. We'll find out. I don't know if this rumor that I told you or some other rumor will be behind it. We'll find out. But whatever it is, I'm sure no matter what, a lot of this weighed very heavily on him. He's been heavily criticized for a while. He's had to fight back against many different groups who are frustrated with his political ideas, the way he ran his game, his social conservative values, etc., etc. When you put the whole thing together in one little neat, tidy package, it's not a pleasant place to be, and maybe he just didn't have the heart to keep on going, even if he had survived next April. Uh, what it appears to be happening is uh, people wanted him out, and they were just going to keep digging up dirt on him until they finally may- convinced him to do that. From what the, the latest news we're getting on the school situation is that uh, the party agreed to pay uh, whatever extra cost there was in his living expenses when he traveled from Saskatchewan uh, and moved to Ottawa. So okay. uh, the price of schooling there versus there, they were making up the difference, whether there's truth to that, but that's that's another aspect that I've heard, which happens, you know, in, no, var- I'm in not, various deals like that. I don't know if that's true either. I'm not bothered by that. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that happens in deals involving leaders and that sort of thing all the time. Oh, sure. Anyway, uh, that being said, um, why not now? Why not? And, and I know you were a firm believer in let it run, it run let it run its course and such. Mm-hmm. But if there is uh, unrest within the party, if it's got to this point, why not just get it done, get it over with, and move on to the next stage? <clears throat> because I don't think life is always necessarily that smooth and easy, Scott. Good right? point. Good point. Um, and and also as well, I mean, if you really want something, if you really crave something. There are occasions where you have to put a lot of force and effort into either getting it or maintaining it, and that was the case here. Look, I've said this to you before. I've said it to others as well, and I'll probably keep saying it for the next few days. 
conservatives by nature like to eat their own. It's a terrible trait in this movement. It's not unique to Canada. Lots of other conservative movements have it, but that's just the way it is when you have parties on the right who believe in intellectual discourse, freedom of expression, free speech, conversations, discussing things out in public, and they believe also in having contentious issues come to play where you can sort of fight it out, usually at conventions or leadership conferences, but they definitely happen there. For that reason, it's not surprising that Andrew Scheer was going to get attacked from all ends because he basically, he you know, he lost in the last election, although he gained 26 seats for the party, they won the popular vote overall, you know, and again, I know that means nothing in the first-past-the-post system we have in Canada, but those things would be regarded as moral victories in the sense that most people would allow him a second kick at the can, so to speak, to try in another election. Unfortunately, though, conservatives were frustrated by everything else that was swirling about him, and as you correctly stated, Scott, they probably would have continued to dig up dirt about him. They had already done it before the election and during the election. Why couldn't they do it after as well? So you put all those things together, it's pretty hard to survive, even though I still think that overall he would have given it a good fight. I, you know, it wouldn't have shocked me had he gone through the April leadership review and survived. It really wouldn't have surprised me, because for all people were talking about that he needed 70 to 80 percent to survive, the party constitution doesn't directly state a magic number, which means that 50%, 50% plus one would have been acceptable. Maybe not to the party members, maybe not to the general populace, but it would have been acceptable. So who knows? We'll never know what happened. He never got to that stage, and it's all just speculation. It's just it, it's a sad way to go down, especially 52 days ago after making gains that the party really needed. Uh, here is a clip from Andrew Scheer in regard to him stepping down. I felt it was appropriate to speak to my friends and colleagues in the House of Commons about one of the most difficult decisions I have ever made. I just informed my colleagues in the Conservative Caucus that I will be resigning as the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. And I have asked the Conservative Party National Council, I, I will be asking the Conservative Party National Council, to immediately begin the process of organizing a leadership election. This party, this movement, needs someone who can give 100% to the efforts. And after some conversations with my kids, my, my loved ones, I felt it was time to put my family first. And here's what the Prime Minister had to say after the resignation. No, there will be many more moments for us to reflect and uh, celebrate uh, the uh, dedication and service that the uh, member opposite has offered and continues to offer to Canadians uh, in his work as an MP for Regina Capel and his work as uh, former Speaker of the House and in his uh, work as leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. I know from uh, the many conversations I've had uh, over the years uh, with the Honourable Leader that um, he sees very much the way I and so many others uh, see our responsibilities as parents, uh, being good parents to our kids in a similar way that we are politicians, we are in this house, not in spite of having kids, but because we have kids and are dedicated to building a better world for them with everything we have. What does this mean for the uh, opposition, Michael? Um, I, I'm sorry, you mean to the Tory opposition itself or for the other parties? To the other, to all of them. 
Well, I mean, look, obviously the, the statements that the prime minister made today are quite nice. They're perfectly acceptable. And he emphasized family, which is obviously very important to Andrew Scheer and, quite frankly, to himself. So, I mean, all of that's good. I mean, I know some people will slough it off and just say, well, that's the gamesmanship that they're showing now, and they're all being nice because he's leaving. Yes, there's an element to that. But still, that's the way the game is played, and it's the right thing to do. What does this mean for the opposition? Well, now they have to start to wonder, you know, who is going to replace Andrew Scheer, not as the interim leader, but as the permanent leader. Who, which people will now sort of come out of the woodwork. You know, now you're looking at people like, well, the Peter McKays, the Rona Ambroses, uh, the Lisa Rates, and others who may or may not run, but at least now, if nothing else, for the next little while, they'll start thinking about it. They'll decide whether they want to make the effort because they know that they're going to be in opposition for a period of time. It's a minority government, so it might fall early, but it is a big minority, so you never know. You might be waiting. 12 months, he might be waiting the full four years. You never have any idea. But now the opposition parties have to start to think that if they go for somebody different, most likely it will be a leader who doesn't resemble Andrew Scheer. Because usually when you go for somebody else, you go for a complete opposite. That means you might be looking at someone who is potentially a red Tory or a left-leaning conservative or a moderate Tory overall on social issues or someone who emphasizes fiscal issues but has you know, moderate social conservative values that he or she can defend quite easily. Or you could be looking at a libertarian type who fully emphasizes economics and policy and looks at nothing else, and that could be difficult to deal with as well. There's all these different machinations that will come about. The problem is it's hard for me or anybody else to predict it right now, Scott, because we don't know who is running for the leadership as of, you know, as of today. In a few weeks, though, we'll have a better idea. Uh, what would be the timeline? Will, will we see a new leader prior to uh, the convention in April? Will it come to a peak there? Any ideas? Good question. Well, I'm not part of the caucus, so obviously I don't know. But let's put it this way. If it were me and I were in charge, I think the easiest thing to do is put everything together for the April leadership review. In other words, don't create a separate conference that's going to cost you extra money. Give everybody a few months to sort of build up a war chest, declare their leadership, meet with people, go on the circuit, have some leadership debates, etc. And besides which, you know, we're heading it towards Christmas. So obviously most people aren't going to be thinking about it now. Certainly they could extend things if they wanted to because, well, there's no necess- not necessarily any great rush. Mr. Scheer will obviously remain party leader until the next leader is announced. So they've got somebody in place, or their placeholder, so to speak. I think that basically you either keep it at April, or if you really want to increase it, cancel the April leadership review, push it to, I don't know, push it to June, maybe give them six months, and I think that's more than enough time. The minority government, this minority government, will is unlikely to fall that quickly. In history, or at least Canadian history, Minority governments typically last 12 to 18 months, and we're only a few days into it right now. So I think they're safe from that angle, unless something really weird happens. And if it does, well, if worse comes to worse, Mr. Scheer remains the party leader for that point, then he'll go into the next election with them. But if that's not the case, give him a little bit of extra time, build everything up, have a good ending to what has been a very difficult period for the last few weeks for this party, and maybe all of it will be, t- you know, tidied up nicely, 
and they can move forward with whoever the new leader is and be more successful when the next election is called. When will we hear the first candidate declare? Who do you think is going to run for this? Uh, I think you're going to at least see one person come out of the blocks pretty fast. That would be my guess. And, I, and it's only because everything's going to get lost in the shuffle because it's close to the end of the year. I think someone might want to make an early jump. Now, it may not be a major candidate. It might be a minor candidate. But that would be my guess. I wouldn't even be shocked if two people did it. Um, but I think gradually over the next few weeks, we'll see some people come in to play. Uh, who's going to run? That's always a fun game. Um, I mean, certainly I think Peter McKay is going to run because his name was poked about even before the election was over. So <clears throat> I don't know if the rumors are true that McKay has had an organization for a while and has been building a war chest for a bit, but it wouldn't shock me if he decided to jump in. Um, Rona Ambrose, if she's not offered the U.S. ambassador's position, I think is certainly a possibility. I know she said no thus far, and she can say no for a while longer, but I know that there are people who would like to have her in place, so she's certainly a possibility. Lisa Raitt, who I also mentioned before, is certainly a possibility. Well-respecting the party, she just recently lost her seat, as we know, but a lot of people like her to the point that, A, they would be happy to have her as leader, and B, there would be MPs who'd probably be willing to step aside so she could run for a seat in Parliament. So that might work out nicely. I guess the only little interesting point would be, would anyone run who's a provincial premier right now and gamble? that for he or she, that they could actually take it much, much further. I don't know. When you mentioned the people you've just mentioned, I think that takes the rest of them out of the, out of the loop. Does it Maybe. not? Because it even e- whether you're even a Jason Moore, Kennedy or a Ford or even so, I don't know. I mean, can no, no, they no, compete no, with Brad those top Moore runners? It's an yeah. obvious choice. Yeah. It's the former Saskatchewan premier, and that would knock everybody else out. Yeah. Um, is, uh, do, do you think they will go for a female this time? Um... It's possible. I mean, unfortunately, the is there a, the is memories there a, of Kim Campbell still, unfortunately. <laughs> but is there is there is there uh, is there momentum to bring this party back to the center? Is there momentum for a kinder, gentler party? Which I remember Ron, Ron Ambrose saying way back when. Is is that is is that in the cards? Well, with all due respect, I don't think this is an extremist party. So I don't think they've been that far away from the center right, quite frankly. Um, but certainly, will they? Unfortunately, you're in the party, Michael, and and, and a good portion. Not, of, well, no, you know what I mean. You're a supporter in, in that respect. You lean to the right. I don't want to put words in your mouth by any means. Um, uh, but many would say that that no, the center is being neglected right now. That 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 it, it appears that uh, the liberals have moved more and more to the left to 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 head the NDP <laughs> off in the past, whether it's provincially or federally, and as a result, uh, swinging farther to the to the right with the Doug Ford or an Andrew. Sheer, and I think it's leaving a gaping hole in the center. I'm not saying that the that the Conservative Party is an extreme party by any means, um, but I think that that a more centrist leader is needed, especially with a a country that's as divided as it is. No, well, I don't think the Conservatives have swung that far to the right. I think, unfortunately, that's people's perception of where the right is today politically. And but that isn't that all that counts at the end of the day? I mean, that's, yeah, I mean, that's, up, that's up to the conservatives to sell that message, and that's something they haven't been very good at lately. No, that's true. But at the same time, if all you're going to do is cater to people and basically say, oh, we're completely wrong, we're going to switch because everybody else wants us to do that, 
Well, that strategy is not going to work either, Scott. You have to basically take realistic positions and ensure that they work or that they sell properly, which large swaths of the public. That's the only way this is going to work. If people think that this is phony, that the only reason they're doing it is to get more votes, it will not get more votes in the end. Uh, no, that's that's not what I'm saying, Michael. But again, it, it just seems that uh, we become more divided, we become more divisive, we become, uh, uh, you know, either one side or the other. And, and, and you know, again, I, I think I, I'm just looking back to the days of Bill Davis and, again, just a, a less combative kind of party. Well, here's the problem. A lot of us, including me, don't want a Bill Davis type yeah. to be our leader. Yeah. And we wouldn't stay. Yeah. And we wouldn't support them. So Why is that? Well, very simply, Bill Davis was a red Tory or a left-leaning conservative, and his point views and values don't necessarily mesh with a lot of our own. Mm -hmm. This party right now is mostly on the blue Tory side or right-leaning Tory side, and that's where it is. So the next leader has to appeal. The, the next leader could appeal to both sects. You know, the, the red Tory group is the red Tories are very, very small actually now in Canada, but obviously you want to have someone who will keep them, you know, afloat and keep them part of the party unit. But you really have to primarily appeal to blue Tories. And if you don't, you're not going to survive. And this party is going to break apart and we're going to spend maybe another 17 odd years in the wilderness as we did before when the federal PCs and the Reform Party, later the Canadian Alliance, had that break. That happens a second time. They're not going to survive. So the, the root is not Bill Davis. Good God. The root, though, is incremental conservatism, which I think I'd mentioned to you yeah. before, which is the model Stephen Harper used, which is not extreme right, it's not wild right, whatever, hard right, whatever you want to call it. It's actually a gradual, it's gradual principles of small-c conservative values done step-by-step step in an incremental fashion which means that you don't push hard and heavy with huge amounts of tax cuts or wild amounts of right. social spending or big slashing of this and that. You do it in a measured way and response. And guess what? Harper won three straight governments that way, including two of the longest-lasting minority governments in the history of this country. So I think there's something to it. Would he have marched in a pride parade? Did he? Harper? Yeah. Not that I know of, but I... I, I mean, no, I'm just thinking, I, I keep coming back to the question I asked uh, Andrew Shearer about marching in the Pride Parade, and I just, you know, I, I respect his opinion, and I respect why he didn't, but he just could not, uh, he just could not uh, vocalize that. He, could, he couldn't sell it. I gotta no. leave, I gotta cut it there. Michael Tobe has been with us, Troy Media Syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times. We are out of time. Michael, thanks. Much appreciated. No problem. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. The death, which was initially thought to have been a murder-suicide, but then uh, changed to a double murder of Barry and Honey Sherman. Uh, and there's a fascinating uh, report right now in the Toronto Star uh, by uh, Kevin Donovan, the chief, uh, chief investigative reporter for the Toronto Star. The headline, Barry and Honey Sherman's bodies were found posed like the sculptures in their basement. A uh, very odd perception as uh, uh, Kevin is uh, following this story. And uh, still to this point, we really don't know what's been happening or uh, where the investigation is. Let's bring in Kevin Donovan from the Toronto Star now. Kevin, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. 
Thanks for having me on. Uh, Kevin, I'm sure I'm not the first one to tell you, this is uh, very odd, very creepy, what you have uh, written in regard to uh, this horrific murder. Uh, Over and above it being very odd, how significant is this? What does it say about the murders or the, the, uh, the, the people who who uh, committed this this uh, horrible murder. What can we learn from this? Well, I think the first thing is just a, a brief description. Uh, Honey and Barry Sherman, when they were their bodies were discovered in their, their uh, basement uh, swimming pool room two years ago, were found in, in what appears to be in a staged manner. They were uh, sitting upright, uh, uh, bodies uh, not quite at a 90-degree angle, but, but uh, and held upright in this seated position, and Barry's, uh, one of his legs was crossed over the other. In another room in the basement, not too far away, uh, were these two uh, junk sculptures that were made by a Philadelphia artist in the 70s. Honey Sherman loved these. Um, uh, the family and friends of the Shermans uh, found it all very creepy, and, uh, and the male, they're quite clearly a male and a female sculpt- sculpture, and the male sculpture has its leg crossed over. So when I saw this picture, I saw this picture three weeks ago after uh, my book on the Sherman murders came out, and uh, I, w- I was quite chilled by it because it looked to me that the staging of the Shermans was done to, to replicate the, the, the staging of these two art figures. Has anyone else drawn that conclusion, or uh, could this all just be a coincidence? Well, it could always be a coincidence. Uh, the, the Toronto police... Uh, have not uh, answered my questions about it. So I, I, they, they said to me yesterday that because it's an active and ongoing investigation, they can't respond to any questions. Uh, and so, so that is, you know, and it is possible that they have a very good answer. What I have found in my two years of looking into this is that the police have a number of missteps uh, in this. I can tell you that I've shown it to people who had knowledge of the, of the autopsies done uh, on the Shermans, and I was told that that this would have been a piece of information that 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 the forensic people would have liked to have had and didn't have. The other thing that I report today in, in the Star is that that there there were more missed clues in the house. The police said there was no sign of forced entry, but as I have recently learned, there was an open window in the basement where the murders happened, and there was an unlocked door. So while there may not have been you know a broken lock as a sign of forced entry, there were certainly signs that somebody could have gone in and out of that uh, basement quite easily and perhaps been waiting there for the Shermans to come home. And apparently, from what we've learned in the past, this wasn't a real secure place. It was it was not uncommon for them to leave doors open. Is that accurate? That's absolutely accurate. In fact, just, just uh, this week, I interviewed another person who was often in uh, the Sherman home providing some uh, physical support to, uh, uh, to Honey, and this person told me that, yeah, uh, they were always saying to, to Honey, would you lock the door? And, and she, she just didn't do that. Uh, they had an alarm system that they never used. Uh, you know, they have a security camera in the basement that hadn't functioned for years. Uh, there's very, they certainly have no outdoor security cameras. And on the street, uh, it's not something that a lot of people on the street have. Uh, so, yeah, the Shermans were not worried about this. And Barry used to joke. To his friends that if they're going to these are his words if they're going to take you out they're going to take you out wow 
Um, obviously, uh, whether um, the the sculptures have any significance or not, it, it certainly does appear that these these bodies were staged. What does that say? Is there anything you can tell us about uh, motive or anything that, that just the fact that they were obviously staged in some way? Well, to me, it makes it uh, more of a, of a personal crime. I, yeah. Person or persons who did this uh, seem to want to send a message. And as Barry would say to his friends, if they want to get me, they can just get me coming out of Apotex. I mean, this was done in their home uh, by means of strangulation, which is generally thought of as a very personal crime. And I, I, I believe from my 250 interviews in this case that, that, that there is something to this because it's just too much of a coincidence that. Uh, I mean, why would Barry be a, a dead man be sitting upright uh, with one leg crossed over the other? That's just that wouldn't make sense. And and if they had been uh, if somebody had, had murdered them, say in a home invasion, uh, which was all, always one of the possibilities that was debated, uh, they wouldn't be staged. There'd be no reason uh, to do that. So so it's and it's another one of these mysteries, and and it's, it's unfortunate that. You know, two years in, the, the police won't answer uh, questions about this, but that's their their choice, and they've made it. It's very odd that you know, again, what you're pointing out here in your uh, Toronto Star article, and and the the whole situation with the staging of the bodies. It would appear, if you're committing a crime such as this, the more of this sort of thing you do, the more evidence you leave, the more clues you leave that could expose yourself. So it really does sort of smell of a vendetta, does it not? Yeah, as I say, something personal. I, I don't think it's a it's an international uh, you know, business deal gone wrong, as some of us speculated. It does seem to be very personal. And I also think that the, the, the killers were trying to make it seem as if it was a murder-suicide. I, I, I do believe that, but I think they did a very poor job. What's amazing is that the Toronto police, uh, with all its, its resources, looked at this scene and so quickly came to this, this conclusion that, that murder-suicide was a strong possibility. Uh, people I've talked to who, who actually saw the bodies uh, that day, it, that was the farthest thing from their mind. And, and you know, a person who ran a generic drug company, if he was going to commit suicide, he would probably use uh, pharmaceuticals, and, and hmm. none of those were found in his body. Hmm. Um uh, and, and, you know, again, going back to the staging, uh, could it be that all of the, the, um, the all of the suspect was trying to do was make it in the staging, was make it look like a suicide as opposed to uh, mimicking the sculptures? Yeah, and, and that could, would have been done to, to buy time. But, I mean, my job is to try and, and, and report things that, that I've discovered and sure. I always try and, and put it. You know, run it by people who would have knowledge of this. And, uh, I mean, a male and female sculpture, life-size human, uh, the male sculpture, the one leg is crossed over the other, uh, same with how, how Barry is. Um, it, it, to me, it, it's too much of a coincidence. Maybe if they're trying to stage a, uh, a murder-suicide, and from what you're saying, she was the one that liked this sculpture. I mean, are they trying to send a message that way? Boy, we're really, we're really digging into the tea leaves here. Yeah, and, and those are questions that, that would be very difficult 
uh, to answer unless you know a, a person were to were to confess. I mean, there's there's many crimes, including the completely unrelated the MacArthur uh, serial killings in, in Toronto, where we just simply don't have the answers because yeah. uh, the, you know the, some, there's some answers that you can only get from from the killer. And uh, I, I think that another thing that we point out today is that when the police first arrived, there were three people, uh, three living people in the house. There was the real real estate agent for the Shermans. There was the uh, uh, housekeeper and also woman who waters the plants. Talk a little and, bit about that, because these people were in the house, so we haven't really heard much about them in all of this. Uh, yeah, so so the, that morning, the Friday, December the 15th morning, uh, as these people all came, uh, the realtor came and, and met uh, two clients and another realtor just to show them the house. The house was for sale. There was also a woman who waters the plants for the Shermans. She comes in once a week. And there was also the housekeeper. And uh, the housekeeper was actually there to meet Honey and to do some cooking with her uh, that morning, uh, preparing for a Hanukkah um, dinner. And so so they, they arrive, and the cleaner is upstairs cleaning. The, the plant waters, watering the plants. The realtor is touring people. And, and it is the realtor who discovers the, uh, the, the what appears to be the dead body. And then, so after, once the police are called, then the, the divisional police, not homicide, but divisional police arrive, and they take these three people. The, the clients are gone already, the realtor, the plant waterer, and the housekeeper, and put them in separate rooms on the main floor. But the housekeeper, left with no instructions, just continues cleaning the house. And, and I'm told she was you know, mopping a floor wow. in, in sort of the front area of the house until eventually... A, a police officer said you should stop that. It just shows to me that they weren't taking it as, as seriously as they should. Any idea how long um, uh, the cleaner and plant person were in the house before the discovery? Yeah, the, the, the cleaner was there uh, for, for quite a few hours, but had work to do upstairs. Uh, and had no idea what was downstairs? No idea hmm. what was downstairs, uh, and the the the, the, plant, the person watering the plants, I think, uh, arrived sort of around the time of the, the real estate agent, so not there uh, as long. Uh, and the real estate agent apparently arrived, you know, before eleven o'clock. The bodies discovered around eleven thirty. Uh, so yeah, it's you know just you can imagine, but this is a big house. Yeah, and people have said that that I mean this basement, including the garage. And the rec room and all the other rooms, it's 8,000 square feet. This wow. is a monster basement. Yeah, yeah. And so it, it's, uh, and the lights were off downstairs too, with the exception of, of, the, of, of the pool light. And so that means that whoever did this, did it uh, and then turned the lights off hmm. on the way out. Um, where is this investigation now? Do you have any idea where they are? What's going on? Is it cold? Has it gone cold? Where is this? Oh, no, no, I, I do. So every six months I have uh, the opportunity to cross-examine the detective, one of the main detectives on the case. And I had him in court uh, in October, and, and we're trying to uh, unseal certain documents related to the case. And he said uh, in October that uh, they are, quote, cautiously optimistic that they're moving toward the resolution. Uh, and he's also told me on the witness stand that they have a theory of the case and an idea of what happened. So the sense that I've been getting over the last couple of months is that they are getting closer, but there are a lot of the 
information that they are going to rely on in any prosecution is going to be electronic, and they've obtained a lot of electronic information. They won't say what it is. Uh, they've analyzed it, and I believe the next step is to do some more search warrants, and then I expect that within the next couple of months there will be a resolution. Wow. Uh, now, what about the family and their investigative team? Are they still on track for all of this? Uh, are still investigating this? Uh, are they chatting with police at all? Uh, uh, several questions there. They have not responded to, to my questions uh, in the last few months, except to say that they're still investigating. I have not seen ev- any evidence that they are investigating at all. And the police have told me that they have not heard anything from the private detective team since August of this year. Up until August, they were sending uh, tips that they received from their uh, reward tip line, uh, but but they haven't had anything since. So so to me, I think that there's not much going on in that investigation right now, and so it is now very much and appropriately so a police investigation. Uh, do the does the family investigators and the police investigators have they been cooperative with each other? No, uh, they're. Uh, about a year ago, uh, the family's lawyer, Brian Greenspan, had a press conference where he was uh, he, he said some uh, disparaging remarks about the quality of the police investigation. And then he announced that they were going to have a, a reward line and, and seek tips from the public. Uh, since that time, there's been an uneasy relationship where uh, the Sherman investigators have agreed to pass information to the police. But what's interesting about that, Scott, is that the Sherman family has put out a reward and asked for the tips to come to them first, and then they will pass them on to police, which is very different than how it would normally happen. Tips should go directly to the police. Uh, What does all of this say? Now, I I can certainly understand a a family of this wealth who, uh, you know, doesn't feel that the police have done an adequate job, that they want to do their own investigation. But at the end, you are all arriving at the same place and the evidence will be used to hopefully convict a killer here. What does it say the fact that they aren't, um, that they aren't uh, necessarily uh, speaking to each other or, or, or sharing of evidence? Does that mean that, um, that they just don't perhaps trust the police and how they're investigating, or is there something else going on here? Well, I, I mean, I think that the Sherman family, private detectives, and, and, and the lawyer uh, were not pleased with what the police had done. In the defense of the police, they're not supposed to be working with other uh, agencies. It's, it's pretty unusual to have, uh, you know, a private detective team being involved with the police in, in, a, in, a, in a, a murder investigation. It does happen sometimes with, with white-collar fraud, but that's not what this is. So, like, it's, it's um, I, the problem is at the very start of this investigation, because the rumors were out there that the police were looking at murder-suicide, that understandably upset the family and then everything from then has been a, sort of a rocky road, and, 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 and I don't expect that to change. Are you confident at the end of all of this we'll know the whole story, or is this one of those situations we'll never know the whole story? No, I, I, I think I am. Uh, uh, certainly, I've in my reporting and in my book, I've certainly brought out a lot of, I think, key pieces of information. But yeah, I, I think we, we will know, uh, but these things do, do take time. Do you have a hunch how this happened? Oh, I, 
got to read my book for that. <laughs> uh, the Billionaire Murders, The Mysterious Deaths of Barry and Honey Sherman, by the way. Um, is, uh, why is this taking so long? Why is this so difficult? Well, uh, my understanding is that this case has become very much a case of uh, judicial production orders and search warrants where the police are following leads, then they realize that they need to have, uh, this is just an example, uh, they need cell phone information on, on certain parties uh, or uh, you know, GPS tracking information on other parties, and then they, it might take them four months to get that from the, or the, the company that they're searching. And then they get that, and then they have to analyze it, and then that sends them off in another direction. It's been a long time since the police have done what your listeners would think of as a, like a classic gumshoe, hmm. you know, interview interviewing people. They, they most of the interviews were done in the first, I would say, four or five months. They did re-interview a couple of people this year. They told me, uh, I don't know who those people are, but uh, uh, so they're really not interviewing more people right now. Uh, they're trying to analyze data. And my suspicion is they're trying to prove that people, person or, or persons X, uh, were in a certain place at a certain time. I think that's where mm. this, this case is. And more and more, I mean, Crown attorneys get involved in these cases, and Crowns are, you know, they have to, they have a high threshold before they lay a charge. And, and Crowns don't want to go into court on a case like this uh, and, and lose. So, I suspect that they are working on, or they are working on their own timeline, and it's not a. This is not a case where somebody sees somebody hit somebody in, in a bar and and, and kill them. Mm. This is this will be a circumstantial case, I believe. Kevin Donovan has been with us, chief investigative reporter for the Toronto Star. The latest is Barry and Honey Sherman's bodies were found posed like sculptures in their basement. And the book is The Billionaire Murders, the Mysterious Deaths of Barry and Honey Sherman. And our guest has been Kevin Donovan from the Toronto Star. Kevin, as always, great stuff. Thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me on. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.